On today's episode of the London Lyceum, we have the honor of sitting down and talking with Dr. Nathan Finn about the eminent pastor theologian, Baptist pastor theologian, Andrew Fuller. So we talked to him about more than just who Andrew Fuller is and giving a brief bio of him, but we particularly zero in on his interaction with hyper-Calvinism, uh, what exactly is hyper-Calvinism, and especially his understanding of the atonement and how that shifted across his uh, theological his career. So we're really interested in this, this uh, topic. I think Baptists and non-Baptists alike uh, should definitely be interested in tuning in to hear more about Andrew Fuller, one of the premier uh, Baptist theologians in all of Baptist history. So before I say anything else, I guess I'm going to kick it off the episode, and you guys really enjoy this one. I'd like to welcome all of our guests to another episode of the London Lyceum. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're the podcast that hopes to develop clear and deep thinking about issues, particularly those from a Baptist perspective, uh, along with uh, the analytic and, ba- and confessional perspective as well. But today we have the honor to introduce you to our, one of our new guests, Dr. Nathan Finn. Uh, we're really looking forward to hearing from him on the subject of Andrew Fuller. I think if you've listened to our episodes so far, I think pretty much anyone who's been interested in Baptist history has mentioned Andrew Fuller as one of their heroes. Uh, so we're really, really excited to hear uh, from Dr. Finn on Andrew Fuller in full. So Dr. Finn, why don't you introduce yourself to us a little bit for those, uh, our listeners who may not know who you are, may not have a context for you. Can you place us a little bit uh, uh, about who you are? Yeah, well, first of all, let me say thanks to you guys for inviting me to be on this podcast. I love doing this sort of thing, and I love talking about uh, Baptist history and theology, and especially talking about my main man, Andrew Fuller. So I'm super excited and honored to be here. Uh, I am a Baptist historian and theologian, a little bit more of a historian. I dabble in theology just enough to be dangerous. (laughs) currently serve as the provost and dean of the university faculty at North Greenville University in the metropolis of Tigerville, South Carolina. Uh, That's Metro Greenville. Uh, In a past life, uh, I served as a historical theology professor at Southeastern Seminary, served as an academic dean at Union University. Uh, So there was a time when I was a legitimate scholar who did things like (laughs) teach classes and write books and go give public lectures in places. And uh, for the last several years, I've uh, pretended like I do those things, but I'm, I'm really an academic leader who tries to equip uh, others to do those things. But uh, I still, from time to time, uh, get to dabble in Baptist studies. And Andrew Fuller has been a, a major interest of my life, uh, really, since I was a doctoral student. Uh, in fact, uh, my youngest son is named Andrew Fuller Finn, and uh, oh, we, call him, we call him Fuller. So, yeah, it's real, right? So That's neat, yeah. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I'm really excited to be here to talk about them today. Yeah, we're we're great to um, it's great to have you with us. And so let's just go ahead and jump right in on the topic of Fuller. I don't want to um, take up uh, any more time before we get into the substance of uh, what we want to talk about. Can you just give us a little bit about uh, Andrew Fuller, the man, before we get into more specific issues regarding his theology and other things? Just give us a, a brief bio so we can um, get a better understanding of who he is. Sure. So Andrew Fuller was a British Baptist pastor, born in 1754, died in 1815. 
uh, he lived in the latter years of what's sometimes been called the long 18th century uh, from the time of the Glorious Revolution in 1688, 1689, uh, lasting till around 1830, which is just a remarkable time in English history, uh, British history, whenever you have for the first time uh, really the toleration uh, of non-Catholic or non-Anglican, depending upon what time period it is, forms of Christianity, uh, culminating with uh, the rise of the modern missions movement. Uh, so it's a very important time in British history, and Fuller was a nonconformist. He was a dissenter uh, as a British particular Baptist, and he comes along in the latter part of that long 18th century and becomes a key leader among not just the British particular Baptists, uh, but among evangelicals in Britain in particular. Uh, the British version of what we in America call the First Great Awakening was simply called the Evangelical Awakening, and it really began within the Church of England, and that gives rise to uh, what became the Methodist movement uh, as something separate from the Church of England, though also there were plenty of Methodists within the Church of England. Uh, but the evangelical awakening really hits Baptist in the second generation in England. And so Fuller becomes a key figure in that Baptist version of the evangelical awakening. Uh, and it's really a missionary awakening because what happens is first Baptists and then uh, evangelicals from lots of other traditions in England uh, take their evangelical priorities about scripture and the gospel and they began to apply those priorities to the question of global missions. And so Andrew Fuller and his good friend William Carey become uh, key figures in that missionary awakening. Uh, so that's what people know Fuller for, if they know him for anything, is uh, being sort of this promoter of missions. Uh, but he was also uh, a Baptist pastor uh, for most of his adult career. Uh, he was a leading Calvinist with, frankly, some uh, kind of controversial views about aspects of Calvinism. Uh, so, so he becomes a, a leading figure of that era and in many ways a kind of a model pastor, theologian, uh, polemicist for theological ideas uh, and promoter of Great Commission priorities. And so for that reason, he's a lot of Baptists. Uh, hero or one of their heroes, uh, and he tends to be reasonably popular uh, among evangelicals in general who might not consider themselves to be Baptists. That's that's a great summary. Thank you for that. Um, I'm curious, you know, one thing that I, I often hear uh, about Fuller is that he was, uh, I guess, embroiled in some form of hyper-Calvinism early on, um, and it seemed to almost depress him to, to a great degree. So, that, along with the fact that it seems that in current Baptist life, Calvinism is not seen as a good thing, I think, for most people. Um, and then there's this type of hyper-Calvinism. Can you give me, I guess, a definition of what exactly hyper-Calvinism is? And how did that really affect Fuller? And why did he, uh, and how, I guess, did he leave hyper-Calvinism? Yeah, that's a great question. So hyper-Calvinism is, like many theological trajectories. There's not necessarily one universally accepted definition of what a hyper-Calvinist is, but I think that the most common definition that you would find 
is uh, somebody who is a consistent Calvinist, a five-point Calvinist, if you will, um, who extends the logic of certain Calvinistic doctrines, in particular predestination and a limited atonement, uh, in such a way that they become uh, uninterested in what we might call intentional evangelism and, and overt call for people to turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And there's all kinds of doctrines that sometimes attach themselves to hyper-Calvinism. Antinomianism is one of them, a, a rejection of God's moral law. Uh, sometimes the idea of eternal justification, that the elect have been saved from before the foundation of the world. They're, they're essentially saved via election, and when they believe, that's just actualized uh, in real time, if you will. Uh, so that there's all kinds of odd things that kind of get attached to hyper-Calvinism, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's somebody who uh, overextends that logic of Calvinism past, uh, beyond the biblical mandate uh, to proclaim the gospel to all people, to be intentional uh, about personal evangelism, uh, and uh, somebody who uh, certainly would still believe in evangelism, hyper-Calvinists believe in evangelism, uh, but they only believe in sharing the gospel with someone if they're convinced that they're already among the elect. Uh, so they're not out there building relationships with people and trying to, uh, to share the gospel with them. So Fuller comes of age during a time when particular Baptists in England were not universally hyper-Calvinist, uh, but there was a lot of hyper-Calvinism in the air. Uh, and it had certainly had kind of a deadening effect on most of that denomination. So Fuller was nurtured as a hyper-Calvinist. And as a young man uh, in his late teens and early 20s, uh, he's really first appalled not by hyper-Calvinism proper, but by antinomianism in his congregation, which, again, often attached itself to hyper-Calvinism at that time. And so first he sort of rejects antinomianism and then uh, largely through reading some of the earlier Puritans like John Bunyan and John Owen in particular, as well as a, a deep dive into Jonathan Edwards, who had died just a generation previously. Uh, what Fuller discovers is that there's this rich tradition of Calvinism that is not hyper-Calvinism, uh, Calvinism that uh, doesn't overly speculate about those uh, Calvinist doctrines, uh, and a Calvinism that is not just compatible with, but often encourages evangelistic fervency, and he becomes uh, kind of a flag waver for uh, that type of evangelical Calvinism in his era, and, and he considers hyper-Calvinism to be a false form of Calvinism, and he certainly isn't the only person who argues that, uh, he's kind of the leading evangelical of his era, that makes that sort of argument, and uh, the arguments stick. And, and so even to this day, whenever people talk about the distinction between hyper-Calvinism as kind of a bad thing uh, versus more evangelical forms of Calvinism, uh, Andrew Fuller is one of those figures that we point to as somebody who helps us to make that distinction uh, between healthier versus toxic forms uh, of Reformed theology. Thank you for that. I think that kind of leads right into something that we wanted to ask you about um, regarding the Baptist Missionary Society and Fuller's involvement with that. It seems like that may have taken um, taken root, the Missionary Society. Um, 
as more Baptists were coming out of this um, hyper-Calvinistic um, way of, of viewing things. So can you give us a, um, maybe just a one to two minute um, brief overview about what the Baptist Missionary Society was? Was it some um, new thing? Was this an unheard of way of, of doing things? And who were some of the men that were involved with it? And how specifically uh, was Fuller's theology um, the fuel behind it? One to two minutes for all of that. <laughs> well, Man, we... <laughs> it is it is a good thing that I am not a cessationist because we are in the miracle working business on this podcast. Well, the, the the one to two minutes was just for the uh, brief overview of what the Missionary <laughs> Society is. You can take as much time as you want to on how its theology involves with it. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So the the Baptist Missionary Society is uh, there's a sense in which it's a new thing and a sense in which it's not a new thing. It's not a new thing in that it's not the first missionary society, uh, but prior to the Baptist Mission Society in the English-speaking world, when a mission society was formed, typically what they were thinking about was uh, what we might call geographically close cross-cultural missions. Uh, so think about something like a mission society in colonial New England that's trying to reach Native Americans, for example. Uh, so you had that sort of thing. What nobody was really doing in the English-speaking world prior to the era of William Carey and Andrew Fuller was saying, should we go to other places where there is minimal or zero gospel witness, and should we intentionally be evangelists and church planters in those places so that they will hear the gospel. And among this group of Calvinistic Baptists, what they really became convinced of is that God had elect people in the unevangelized world. That's kind of part A. And part B, uh, the Great Commission is a binding command on every generation of Christians. Ergo, we are the means that God uses to rescue those elect people in those far-flung places who have not yet believed. So partly through the writings of Jonathan Edwards, partly through William Carey and his arguments about the Great Commission, partly Andrew Fuller's arguments about what's called the free offer of the gospel, uh, just the idea that we should share the gospel with anyone and everyone and call upon them to repent and believe regardless of what we may or may not suspect about whether they're among the elect. Uh, all those ideas kind of come together and they fuel the formation of that Baptist Missionary Society, uh, which sends William Carey and another gentleman to England, I mean, excuse me, from England to uh, India. And then uh, within just a couple of decades after the formation of the Baptist Missionary Society, you had other denominations all across the English-speaking world doing the same thing, Methodists, Anglicans, Arminian Baptists. Uh, so it's, it's just for a very short time, uh, sort of this particular Baptist-only sort of priority. Uh, everybody gets in on the action uh, once they see it can be done, which is why we often point to the formation of the Baptist Missionary Society as the symbolic beginning of the modern mission movement in the English-speaking world. Doesn't mean there weren't missionaries before then, but sort of an intentional we're looking for and training and funding and sending out missionaries. Uh, we, we really date that to Carrie and Fuller and the formation of the Baptist Mission Society. 
Well, that's fascinating. And one thing I'm particularly interested in here, uh, you know, we've been talking a little bit about his theological views are, does he have any uh, specific, um, I guess, maybe original or, or unique theological contributions that he made? That's a really interesting question. Uh, I think if we conjured the spirit of Andrew Fuller and brought him here, uh, he would say, absolutely not. I believe the same thing that John Owen and my particular Baptist forefathers before hybrid Calvinism and uh, even the Synod of Dort and the apostles believed. Uh, so, so he doesn't think there's anything really unique about his beliefs. Having said that, uh, some of his beliefs are, while maybe not unique to him, he popularizes some ideas that become very controversial during his era. Uh, so one of the ideas that he holds to that becomes very controversial is he transitions from, uh, for lack of a better phrase, kind of a limited atonement view uh, to a more general atonement view. And he seeks to reconcile that with uh, a particular election and total depravity and irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints. Uh, so he becomes a transitional figure in particular Baptist life, which had prior to that time uh, rallied around five point Calvinism. He becomes a transitional figure who opens the door for four point Calvinism, uh, which quickly uh, within a generation kind of becomes the default view among the particular Baptists. Uh, he also tries to do that by synthesizing a moral government view of the atonement with a penal substitutionary view of the atonement. And there's this big debate among theologians even to this day as to whether he successfully does that, uh, but he borrows language uh, from the American New Divinity theologians and tries to synthesize uh, their views of moral atonement uh, with uh, penal substitutionary atonement, and, and that's kind of his one of the ways he gets at a general rather than a particular view of the atonement. So that becomes controversial because some people agree with what he's trying to do there and some don't. Uh, he is accused of having an ambiguous view on the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Uh, I actually think he does affirm the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Uh, but whenever you start tweaking penal substitution, it's natural to begin uh, tweaking the way that you talk about uh, imputation. And so uh, his views on that become a little bit more uh, controversial. Uh, so he certainly has views that might be controversial in an intra-reformed sort of discussion. Uh, but if we're talking about kind of broader Christian orthodoxy, uh, there's nothing really there that's creative or original or especially controversial. Uh, it, it's really more family discussion sort of controversies uh, versus somebody who says this thing that everybody remembers and now they talk about that uh, in a way that continues to influence theology today. I, I like that distinction that you made. I think that's really helpful. Um, I am curious though, it, do you think, was Fuller coming up with these ideas himself uh, and just kind of tweaking that as he thought about it, as he's mulling over it in his mind, as he's interacting with other works, or was there somebody a precursor to him who's saying some of these ideas and he's latching onto them and expanding them? He's borrowing a lot from Jonathan Edwards and okay. from later Edwardsian theologians. So if we jump across the pond to America for just a minute, 
uh, Jonathan Edwards is simultaneously a really creative outside the box thinker, comma, and he is a defender of traditional Calvinist orthodoxy. And what happens in the generation after Edwards is his theological successors do not hold that tension together in a way that Jonathan Edwards just lived it out naturally. So some of his theological heirs are defenders of Calvinist orthodoxy. Others are creative theological thinkers. Uh, the new divinity movement, uh, which we identify with people like Joseph Bellamy uh, and others, uh, those individuals move away from a limited atonement. They deny the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Uh, later, uh, New England theologians are even going to deny original sin. And the folks who are doing all of that are the contemporaries of Andrew Fuller. So he's drinking deeply from that Edwardsian theological tradition. Uh, and in fact, I, I joke when I teach on this that uh, pun very much intended, he baptizes Jonathan Edwards's <laughs> theology and uh, popularizes that among the Baptists. And then he never gets as creative or controversial as some of Edwards's heirs in America, but he's dialoguing with those folks, he even knows some of them, they're correspondents of his, and he's incorporating some of those ideas like an openness to a moral government and different ways of talking about uh, imputation. And uh, those are the ideas that are kind of forming who he is. So kind of on the one hand, you've got this deep engagement with the Edwardsian tradition. On the other hand, the thing to understand about Andrew Fuller, and I think that this is true of the Baptist tradition in general, though there are exceptions, Andrew Fuller is a Biblicist. Mm -hmm. And for him, the biblical text as he's interpreting it in that moment trumps greater confessional concerns. So when you look at, for example, the Reformed tradition and uh, the, the great thought that's gone into how do all of these doctrines hold together and some of the great debates that have taken place and uh, Reformed orthodoxy and, and all of these different movements uh, since the Reformation, Andrew Fuller could care less about most of that. He's very much a what does the text say sort of guy. And so when he comes to the Bible, uh, not to oversimplify things too much, but he's convinced he sees, for example, unconditional election, and he's convinced he sees eventually a general atonement, and he could care less what the Reformed tradition thinks about that or even what Baptists think about that. Uh, he just wants to stick to the text of Scripture, and so that combination of engaging deeply with some Edwardsian ideas that are there uh, along with uh, just not being very enamored uh, with any sort of confessional tradition, but uh, being very much just kind of a Calvinistic biblicist. I, I think that's really at the heart of where he's coming up with his ideas on these topics. So on the topic of the atonement, um, you mentioned that there were some Baptist theologians who um, disagreed and some disagreed strongly with um, the direction that Fuller was going. Um, and we, we were talking with... Um, one of our pastor friends um, who's a pastor down in South Carolina, and he was talking to us about Abraham Booth and um, Booth's disagreement with Fuller on the topic uh, of the atonement. Can you give us your take on, if you want to call it the, a controversy, um, but the disagreement between those two men on specifically the, the atonement 
And also, do you think that they, um, uh, what's the best way to word this? Um, how would that uh, controversy look in, in the modern day? Like, was it pretty tame or, or was it something that if it happened today, like it would be making headline news, you know, uh, you know, among Christians? So it was a huge controversy within Baptist circles in England. So, uh, so, so I, t- I sometimes joke that there are people who are famous or notorious and there are people who are Baptist famous or notorious, <laughs> which is not necessarily the same thing. So right. this was kind of, so this wasn't necessarily like the sort of debate that everybody in England was sitting around and going, Oh man, are you with Fuller? Or are you with Booth? But it was certainly a Baptist famous debate. Uh, and so a lot of it comes down to this very dynamic where I was just mentioning kind of a more biblicist approach versus a more confessionally informed approach. So uh, my good friend, David Norman wrote a dissertation on this controversy just a couple of years ago at Southwestern seminary. And I was able to serve on his dissertation committee. It's one of the best dissertations I've ever read. He's currently trying to get uh, that work published in monograph form. Uh, But I agree very much with kind of his read on this, that there's really three kind of debates going on at the same time. Uh, one of those debates is over the extent of the atonement. And so uh, Abraham Booth is arguing for, for lack of a better phrase, kind of an Owenist account of limited atonement. He sounds a lot like John Owen when he talks about the atonement. Andrew Fuller has really moved away from limited atonement, but he never admits that he does. But he's clearly, or in my mind, he's clearly arguing for a general atonement during the second half of his life. So they disagree about that. Uh, they disagree about imputation. Uh, when it comes to Abraham Booth, he really just wants to kind of default to classical reformed confessional language about imputation. And Fuller doesn't not agree with that, but he just kind of refuses to use the same language that Booth really wants to hear. So like all the different code words that Booth is looking for to signal that Fuller is still a safe theologian. Fuller's like, nah, I'm just quoting scripture and, uh, <laughs> and kind of refuses to do that. And then the third debate, and this really, this surprises people because this is reversed from what you would think it would be. Uh, Fuller is resolute, like most people in the Reformed tradition, that, uh, that theologically, uh, regeneration precedes faith. Whereas Abraham Booth, sort of inexplicably, I think, for somebody who takes the Reformed confessional tradition so seriously, uh, he's just convinced that faith precedes regeneration theologically. And, uh, and, and there's, some, there's some who argue that Calvin held that view. I think it's a little ambiguous. I, I see both sides of that argument. And so maybe he's, you know, latching on a little bit more to Calvin rather than later Reformed orthodoxy, if that is indeed the case, that Calvin is maybe less clear on that issue. Uh, so that one always kind of surprises people when they find that out, because you would think it would be the other way. Uh, but at the heart of this debate is really uh, the fact that in some ways, uh, Abraham Booth is a Baptistic heir of John Owen and that sophisticated sort of confessional logic when it comes to theologizing. And Andrew Fuller is the Baptistic theological heir of Jonathan Edwards, uh, and is just uh, much less interested in the sort of uh, logic chopping, if you will, 
that Owen does and then prefers to uh, just proof text scripture and uh, live with tensions rather than try to resolve those tensions logically and theologically. I think that's all actually really interesting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that about Booth and the faith and regeneration thing. Yeah, neither did you know, I. Morgan conveniently left that out when we were talking yeah, about Booth. He but. was an Abraham Booth <laughs> apologist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that said, I, I'm interested, um, maybe for those of our listeners who are Baptists, why, why should they fundamentally care about what Andrew Fuller uh, said and thought? And those who are not Baptists, why should they care about Andrew Fuller? So those who are Baptists should care about Andrew Fuller first and foremost because he is a model pastor theologian who is willing to engage with all the great theological debates of his day. So even if you disagree with him about some of the particulars, this was a guy who took truth seriously. He took scripture seriously. He was nervous about any sort of idea that was in vogue that he perceived to be a threat to the purity of the gospel, whether it was hyper-Calvinism, whether it was Arminianism, whether it was uh, antinomianism, whether it was overt heresies like Socinianism, uh, which was uh, all the rage during that era, or uh, universalism. He was just willing to engage in all those issues. And I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that Baptist pastors are sometimes afraid to engage in real theological debate because they're either not equipped to do so or they're afraid that theology isn't really relevant to the Christian life. And uh, Fuller was a healthier thinking thinker than that. He, he got that everybody's a theologian. It's just a question of whether you're a good theologian or a bad theologian. So he was willing from a pastoral perspective to, uh, to defend what he thought was biblical and to engage in those great debates of the day. Uh, and I think if you are not a Baptist, uh, you should be interested in Fuller because he stands out as uh, one of the only half dozen or so Baptists that are theologically astute enough and wrote widely enough that their ideas are worth engaging if you're interested in historical theology and how that applies today. Uh, I, I certainly don't think that Andrew Fuller has universal appeal uh, in the same way uh, that some of the Puritans have universal appeal, or certainly Jonathan Edwards. Uh, but what I've been saying to my non-Baptist friends for years is if you're the sort of person who's really interested in kind of the recovery of Jonathan Edwards, the recovery of John Owen, uh, you know, this this is a guy who's worth looking into uh, because, again, he really does model uh, how to engage in uh, theological disputation from an overtly pastoral perspective for the sake of safeguarding the gospel and its implications among God's people. And I just think that that's something that's missing frequently today. And whenever we do find it, uh, it's often accompanied by the sort of nastiness uh, that leads to the blogs uh, that cause angels to die every time somebody reads them. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, so earlier you joked about conjuring up the spirit of Andrew Fuller. So let's say, again, that we could do that, and Fuller could stand before Baptists today, and maybe even more specifically for um, our context. Let's just say he could stand before Southern Baptists, since that is um, the you know most of us um, 
I think I guess most of us that are Baptist in the United States are probably going to identify or either be familiar with the Southern Baptist Convention. If Fuller could stand before Southern Baptists, what do you think he would say to them about either what is going on among Southern Baptists, what's going on with their theology? Um, what do you think he would want to say to them? <laughs> this is always a tricky question, right? Because, I mean, there, I mean, there's a sense in which we don't know. Right. But, uh, but if I had to guess, I would say that Andrew Fuller would, on the one hand, be very encouraged by the missionary evangelistic fervency that he see that he would see in Southern Baptist life and that we have all these elaborate mechanisms for supporting that the mission boards and the cooperative program. I think he'd be very pleased to see uh, how theological education has advanced. I mean, he was, he was of the era where Baptists had very little access to formal theological education. I mean, you really, you, you had to self-teach yourself and often learn from uh, the Pado Baptists and then apprentice yourself to those who had the ability to pursue theological education. I think he'd be really pleased by those sorts of things, and he would see those as positive developments. I think he'd be horrified at how atheological the pulpit is mm -hmm. uh, today, and, and that the, the pragmatic questions drive the doctrinal concerns rather than the doctrinal concerns informing the way we approach the pragmatic things that just naturally arise in everyday ministry. Um, I think he would be uh, very disappointed that Southern Baptists are not more Calvinistic, but, uh, but he wouldn't be waving the flag for limited atonement. So I think that he would uh, be somebody who would probably in some ways push back on, uh, on those who uh, would consider themselves to be five point Calvinists. Uh, but he certainly would, would not be happy with uh, just kind of like the, the general trajectory of Southern Baptist life with, uh, you know, borrowing ideas from both Calvinism and Arminianism and not really looking like either. Uh, yeah, he, I think he'd appreciate the, the Biblicist spirit behind that as a Biblicist. But I think he'd say, I think you're not taking some of those verses as seriously as I do or whatever. And, uh, and I, I think there would be some pushback on uh, some of the less Calvinistic brethren and sistren among us. But those are those are just my guesses. Who knows? Well, that's I, I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, before we let you go, uh, we've really appreciated all the things you've kind of taught us about Andrew Fuller. I, I want to know for those who are interested in learning more about him. Um, what are the key texts, I guess, from Andrew Fuller that they should get their hands on or and or um, is there a biography or, or something out there that would be a key text for them to read? Great question. So if you want to read Fuller's most important work, I would highly recommend that you begin with his uh, The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. Uh, which is his famous argument for the free offer of the gospel to all people and reconciling that with the doctrine of election. There's two different editions. In the first edition, he still holds to limited atonement. In the second edition, he's moved away from limited atonement. 
uh, I would recommend the second edition since that's his mature thought, uh, even if, if a reader might disagree with his mature thought on that. Uh, but I think that's the entry point to Fuller. And then I also think uh, his ordination sermons, where he talks about the nature of pastoral ministry and what a pastor should care about, uh, that's also a really great place uh, to start with Fuller. Uh, there's a very accessible three-volume edition of all of Fuller's works that's from the 19th century that was republished uh, about 30 years ago now uh, by Sprinkle Publications. It's just called The Works of Andrew Fuller. Uh, you can get it around $100, and it's also just all over the internet for free if you read it online. Uh, you can access his stuff that way. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, I'm also one of the editors of a 16-volume critical edition of uh, Andrew Fuller's works, and so I, I edited one volume in that series. I'll be editing another, and uh, you know they're they're a bargain. They're a steal at like $135 a piece. So, uh, <laughs> so that that's also for the for those for those who want to go full nerd into Fuller. The, uh, the critical edition with the introductory essays, that's the way to go. If you want to read about Fuller, I would recommend two works. If you just want to read a straight-up biography, then Peter Morden's book, cleverly titled Andrew Fuller, 1754 to 1815, <laughs> is, I think, the, uh, the best starting place for just kind of who he is and what he cared about. Uh, if you want to read about Andrew Fuller, biographical, but a little bit more focused on the idea of Andrew Fuller as a pastor theologian. Uh, Paul Brewster, who is a Southern Baptist pastor, uh, his book, Andrew Fuller, Model Pastor Theologian, is probably the best entryway into who Fuller was and his pastoral priorities and how those informed uh, all the things that he was involved in, whether they were the great theological debates or uh, being a promoter of missions. Well, for all of our listeners, you've heard it here. Those are the books you need to go get, especially the ones that uh, you're editing, Dr. Finn. So um, That's I know you've, right. I know you've I, also I did, done some other writing. Well, I think it's important to remind your listeners that every copy of one of my books helps to feed starving children that my wife gave birth to. So <laughs> uh, I want to encourage you to, uh, to, to, to buy them. Uh, to use Andrew Fuller's language, to buy them promiscuously and then to freely offer them to others as Christmas gifts. Well, Dr. Finn, we know you're on Twitter. Is there anywhere else that people can find you and follow what you're doing? Yeah, I'm on Facebook as well. Um, I'm, I'm probably a little snarkier on Facebook uh, than I am on Twitter. Well, then I need to follow uh, but, you there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm on, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and uh, and I'm roaming the halls of the Southern Baptist Convention and the Evangelical Theological Society and other such places. If anybody wants to bump into me incarnate, uh, that's where I might be every year. Oh, that's awesome. So uh, we really thank you for your, the time you've taken to talk with us about Andrew Fuller. Um, uh, I learned a lot today myself, so I want to give you, uh, I guess, a, a, a virtual high five uh, since we're not incarnately in the same room. Um, that said, um, Thanks again, and we look forward to reading more of these edited works that you have coming out. We encourage all our listeners to check out um, all the things that you've got going on. Um, and again, 
For those who have been listening, this is the only analytic Baptist confessional podcast that exists, an eclectic mix of theology uh, from those three perspectives. And uh, we look forward to discussing more theological issues in the future. All right, Dr. Finn, thanks a ton uh, for the time. Uh, It was a blast. Yeah, thank you, sir. We appreciate that. Thanks, guys. I think if Andrew Fuller was here today, he would be scratching his head over the idea of analytic confessional Baptist theology. <laughs> That's why we didn't and, even, and, we, and, yeah, and, we just kind of deleted that question. We were uh, like, I think, I think he's already answered that. <laughs> I think he'd say, fellas, you guys have some explaining to do. Yeah, but, that's uh, right. <laughs> but, but that's one of the reasons I think Fuller is, I mean, I could have even said this. I mean, one of the reasons he's important is he demonstrates everything that's good and everything that's maddening about kind of just a a biblicist approach to how to do theologizing um he he would have he certainly the the analytic thought wasn't there yet in the form it is now but he would have greatly benefited i think from some more intentional confessional engagement and uh you know he took the he took the pious but perhaps lazy way out uh by over by overemphasizing kind of a scripture alone sort of approach Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.